Thanks to Airbnb for sponsoring this episode of Motley Fool Answers. Whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. Go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert of House Brocamp. How <laughs> yes. you doing, bro? Yes, the the podcast is dark and full of terrors. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> We're also joined this week by Emily of House Flippin' to help us with our May mailbag episode. We're going to be answering your questions about investing in Chinese stocks, how to keep an investing journal, and when to lock in your returns, and so much more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Well, let's just get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Emily, thank you. By the way, thank you so much for joining us Thank again. you so much for having me again. We, had, we received some lovely feedback from listeners last time you were on the show, so we were like, oh, we got to get her back ASAP. Well, so. I like being here, so I appreciate it. Well, all right. Let's just, let's, let's just start the fun. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go from Susan. I am about five years, I hope, away from retirement, currently with about 60% of my retirement investments in mutual funds and about 40% in individual stocks. Of the money in mutual funds, about 5% is held in target date funds. I know that I should probably start pulling money out of the market in the next year or two to start building my cushion for retirement income, but I'm reluctant to get completely out of the market, especially since rates for savings accounts and CDs are still so low. Is it foolish, or just little f foolish, to think that I can stash some of my money in a target date fund before it's completely pulled out of the market? Let's start by discussing how much money you should have in and out of the stock market when you're within five years of retirement. So, if you look at a range of 2025 target retirement funds, basically funds for people who are going to retire around 2025, you'll see that they keep about 35 to 45% of the assets out of stocks and then reach about a 50-50 mix by the time you reach retirement. But there's a broad range. So, like if you look at T. Rowe prices, they're more aggressive. Black Rocks are more conservative. So, if you're going to choose a target retirement fund, you definitely want to choose one that is lining up with your risk tolerance. For what it's worth, the model portfolios in my rural retirement service are a little more aggressive. So, when you're about 10 years from retirement, I think you should have about 25% of your money out of the stock market, moving to about 40% out of the market by the time you retire. Um, for someone like you, five years of retirement, just so you know, historically, over five-year holding periods, stocks have made money about 85% of the time. But what if you're in that 15% of the time? Then that might have to put off your retirement plan, and that may be fine for you. But I definitely think, based on what you said, you probably should have more out of the stock market than you do. Now, you can do it on your own, or you can do what you're suggesting to do, and that is put more money in target retirement funds and let them do that sort of management for you. But just know that putting money in a target date fund is a mix of stocks and bonds, so they're not necessarily super safe investments. So just keep that in mind. All right, our next question. Um, we're actually going to combine a question from Rachel and from O School. Was that off Twitter? Yes. Okay. So this is for Emily. I tried to purchase individual shares of Tencent through my Vanguard account, but instead of sending it through as a buy, they want me to call in? Gasp! Who calls people these days? This makes me a little nervous. Is investing in China tech risky? Is there an easier way to invest in companies in China? And then O-School was asking, I'm thinking Tencent might be a possible portfolio addition. There are two OTC pink tickers for this stock. TC 
E-H-Y and T-C-T-Z-F. What will I actually be owning if I invest? Those are really good questions. Uh, to answer the first one, yes, investing in Chinese stocks, especially Chinese tech stocks, is riskier than investing in home companies here in the U.S. That's not to say it is a bad idea, though. So Your broker just makes you call them to verify that you do, in fact, want to trade international companies. and These are, for the most part, traded over American depository receipts, ADRs. So These do represent, typically, one share, sometimes it depends, of the underlying company. So if you buy an ADR of Tencent, theoretically you're owning one share of the company listed in Hong Kong. So it is a little bit riskier. You do have some extra fees. They're typically very nominal. They're called depository pass-through fees. Uh, these range from one to five cents per share. So you'll get those charges typically once a year. So there are some nominal fees there. That being said, if you are interested in buying international companies, and I think every investor in one form or another should have some international exposure, these are totally fine ways of doing. So some brokers will require you to call in. Some will just say you can trade automatically. I use Fidelity. I've never had to call for Fidelity, but there's no reason to say that you know that five minutes out of your time to call get that approval. You won't have to do it every time you trade that stock. And for Tencent in particular, it does have two pink sheets, two tickers traded over the counter. One pays out dividends in USD, the other in Hong Kong dollars. Dividends are very small for Tencent, so it doesn't really matter. But for the most part, you'll probably want to buy the TCEHY. That's the one that pays out dividends in US dollars. It's also more liquid, so you're more likely to get a better rate when you buy and sell. So both of these people are interested in Tencent. I don't. What does Tencent do? What do you like Tencent? Tell I do me happen Tencent. to love Tencent. Okay, me I do love Tencent. all of my Chinese companies, though. Yes, all equally, I'm sure. Tencent's a Chinese behemoth. They're known for as kind of an integrated gaming company, but really they do a lot more. They run and own WeChat, which is one of the largest Chinese social messaging systems. So they do a lot in this space. They're a really great, strong, profitable. Diversified company with lots of different investments, uh, but they do have some of that Chinese exposure. So obviously, the market's been a little unfriendly to our Chinese companies with gaming regulations and a trade war. So whether or not you want to add it to your portfolio, obviously, is up to your discretion. And just for for our listener background, you spent time in China. I did. I did. I did my undergrad in China in Shanghai, uh, and I did know for firsthand I could not live there without using at least one of Tencent's products. So it is one of my higher conviction Chinese holdings. All right, our next question is from David. My wife and I were discussing our retirement savings and have a question neither of us knew the answer to, but it seemed important. If the brokerage we have our 401k with went bankrupt, do we lose our 401k? How would we recover it? Well, that is a good question. Uh, fortunately, every broker has what's known as SIPC coverage. So it's basically the FDIC equivalent for brokers, and it covers you up to losses if the company fails or, in some cases, fraud. But there's a limit, protection of $500,000, which includes $250,000 of cash. The good news is that most firms have more coverage. It's called SAPC excess coverage, and it's enormous. So Vanguard Brokerage has coverage of up to $250 million per account. Fidelity has up to $1 billion per account. So you're probably covered. Who insures these? Who insure? Is it one company that insures? I don't know. It sounds to me like the type of Lloyd's of London type yeah. of thing. <laughs> I mean, if Vanguard goes bankrupt, we have bigger problems than right. our 401k. Right. Well, that's a good question. So, first of all, it actually doesn't happen that often. I looked at how many cases are now pending with the SIPC, and there's only four Legend Securities, Western Capital, Lehman Brothers, 
and Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities. <laughs> so I don't think it happens that often. Okay. So maybe it doesn't actually cost that much to insure all this. But regardless, there is coverage. Also, with a 401k, any of the qualified employment plans are covered by the ERISA laws, which are governed by the Department of Labor, so they have a whole other layer of protection. All that said, if something happens, it's a big pain. What happens is the authorities come in, swoop into the brokerage, get all the accounts, and see who owns what. Um, so it's really important for you to have documents, keep your paperwork, because if the brokerage was a complete mess and they don't have enough paperwork to establish what you own, you have to be able to prove it. And there are limits to how long you have to make a claim. So, for example, in, in the case of SIPC, you have to make a claim within a year. So as soon as you know that there's trouble, make your claim, contact the relevant authorities, and make sure you get your name on the list. With something like Bernie Madoff, though, it wasn't like they just went bankrupt. It was fraud. So you may have a piece of paper that says you have a bajillion dollars, but in actuality, you had zero dollars. Does insurance still kick in, Uh, even in the case of fraud? With that, there were settlements where people were, were basically what they did have was split up among the people who made claims. Right. And there was some coverage for it as well from the SIPC and other. Other organizations. It's also important to note that this is in the case of uh, brokerage insolvency. In some cases, fraud does not insure you against investments going down or does not insure you against a financial advisor giving you bad advice. You're on your own for that. All right, next question comes from Vijesh. I am 27 years old and currently have my Roth IRA split almost equally between a target date index fund and individual stocks. My question is whether you think it is a good strategy to automatically sell a stock after it earns a certain amount. For example, I purchased McCormick stock in January and had it set to sell as soon as I made 10%, which happened to be in March, a fairly quick and nice return. Yes, it's a good question, and and congratulations on the 10% return in McCormick. Um, But I will say, we tend to invest a little differently here at The Fool, and that's because studies continuously show us that long-term buy-and-hold investing tends to outperform trying to time the market. It's a funny thing about humans. We're really bad at that. We're really bad at figuring out the right time to put money in and take money out. You know, we see media, we hear news, and it makes us nervous. So we tend to buy and hold stocks for long periods of time. So we tend to say three to five year time horizons, then you can reevaluate. So using McCormick as an example, um, it's actually up 15% over the year and 30% over the lows from the year. So Theoretically, depending on what time somebody might have purchased McCormick, a 10% return was leaving a little bit of money on the table, despite the fact that a 10% return is also great. So I tend to think that investors who maybe are a little bit more prone to be nervous about the market, to want to put money in or take money out actively, that sometimes index funds tend to be the best thing. Because if a 10% return on an investment makes you nervous, or a 10% drop in an investment makes you nervous, well, sometimes if you respond to that, you could be leaving money on the table. So the other day I was I don't check my scorecard very often to see how well my stocks have performed and this is going to sound so, this is going to make me sound really dumb. So I'm looking at my scorecard to see how well my portfolio of individual stocks has performed and I was like, "Oh, huh, that's funny. The stocks I've held the longest have performed the best." And then I was like, "Oh, wait, that's what we preach here at the market." <laughs> 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 the so yeah, Genius, genius over here. Finally, put it together. What we've been, what we've been preaching the whole time. So whatever. All right. Next question comes from Carlo. In various full podcasts, it has been mentioned that it is a good idea to keep track of one's thesis for investing in stocks or funds. 
For me, the thesis consists of various numbers as well as text. Spreadsheets work well with numbers, but don't do well with holding a lot of text. Do you have a recommendation for a format or app to keep thesis notes? Yes, a lot of fools talk about this. And on this show, one fool talked about it was Buck Hartzell, who was on last Mailbag episode. And he talked about keeping a journal uh, maybe a year or two ago when he was on. So, since Buck sits right next to me, I asked him, so tell me about your journal. He pulled it up. So it's a Word doc, and at this point, it's almost 600 pages. Oh, wow. So he's kept it for years, but he showed me what he just entered yesterday. So he just sticks with a, a Word doc, and whenever he makes any sort of purchase or sale, he records it. He records the reasons why, and he says the most important thing is to look back at it in a year or two to say, like, based on what I knew then, did I make a good decision? If generally you're making good decisions, great. If not, you need to change your process. Um, I put the question out to other folks in the investment group to see how they keep their journals. David Kretzman does it in Google Docs, same mm-hmm. sort of thing. He puts down whenever he buys or sells, puts valuation metrics, any sort of price information, any sort of information he used to make the decision, mm-hmm. just to keep track of things. Tim Byers uses a combination of Airtable, Notion, and Box, which he acknowledges is probably too complicated. <laughs> but he says Notion is a great catch-all because you can embed Google Docs and PDFs, write notes, and all kinds of things. A few folks use Microsoft OneNote, hmm. um, which is great because it integrates with all the Microsoft, Microsoft products. And others, like me, use Evernote, hmm. which is generally free, but free. But if you use it for uh, if you have too much information in there, you do have to start to pay. And the good thing about Notion, OneNote, and Evernote is they do have capabilities of integrating a spreadsheet. So if that is something where you want to have a spreadsheet and text, those should work. If you're often using Excel, I imagine OneNote is probably best, since they're both Microsoft products. It probably makes the integration a lot easier. Emily, do you keep an investing journal? I do. I, I tend to do it very similar to the way Buck does it, though. I, I keep Most of my investments I make for qualitative characteristics. So it's really valuable to me to look back on what I was thinking when I made the investment and why I chose to buy it. But I do keep an Excel sheet, and it's not just for my investments, it's for all of my finances, actually. But I keep my stocks in a, a, a tab in that spreadsheet, and I track their performance there. But when I think about looking at my investments and gauging performance, I tend to look back on what's changed since I made that original investment versus what I'm thinking now. Although I will say, I have not been investing as long as Buck, but it already is getting <laughs> a little disorganized. <laughs> 600 pages. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. the value of both he and then and David Cressman said the same thing with his big Google Doc is it's just so easy to search it. As long as you include the ticker, things like that, it's just easier to find whatever you're looking for in that one big doc. Yeah. All right. Next question from Susan. How do I go about investing in marijuana production and which companies are best? I'm only looking to invest a very small amount of $100. I want to go off on a little side note. Please here. do. Yes. So, Susan, I am so excited by the fact that you're interested in investing in marijuana stocks. And here at The Motley Fool, I work on our marijuana master service along with Shannon, another analyst. And the two of us have looked at metrics for our marijuana master service. And you know what group owns predominantly marijuana company marijuana stocks here at The Motley Fool? I don't know. Women. Really? Women tend to be very interested, especially in comparison to the male cohort, in buying pot stocks. So, hmm. first of all, Shan, uh, Susan, thank you for contributing to that demographic. <laughs> um, I'm on to something here. Maybe we need a female-oriented pot service. Right. Uh, but 
So I just wanted to note that before I answered your question. That's interesting. So all of that being said, and as excited as I am by the marijuana industry, I will say it is extremely risky. And there's a couple things you need to note. You got the first part down, which is invest only a small amount of money, only only the amount of money that you can afford to lose. So when you talk about investing a small amount, say $100, as long as that's a low percentage of your entire portfolio, you should be fine. Think about it in terms of the amount of their portfolio that you'd be totally okay if it went to nothing. Because honestly, a lot of marijuana companies right now are extremely hyped, extremely overvalued. We saw the same thing happen with cryptocurrency. When the media gets a hold of something, an industry, people want in. And it's great because unlike crypto, I do see the underlying demand for marijuana, but you need to invest wisely, which is why, as part of the Marijuana Master Service here in the US, we tend to invest in not only pure play companies that have strong financial financials, but the ancillary companies, so the companies that are going to succeed even if marijuana were to fail. Some of the companies that we tend to like a lot are OTC market group. So that's a great example of of a company. They actually own a lot of over-the-counter exchanges. So as these marijuana companies list, and a lot of them do, and a lot of them will fail, they there's poised to succeed regardless. Uh, But if you are really interested in getting into maybe the pure play companies, the producers, it's important to focus on companies that have strong underlying financials. Uh, Avoid companies like Tilray, Acreage Holdings, those companies that you hear a lot on the news because they're weak financials, they have a lot of debt, a lot of shareholder dilution, and you're not likely to make up your investments. But if you do choose to go into the marijuana industry, just remember, invest only what you can lose. With the marijuana industry, how likely is it that all of these little companies that are getting into that are producing marijuana are just going to get bulldozed by if a major company decides to be like, you know what, now we're a marijuana company. Well, we've already seen a lot of major companies start to invest in this space. I think it's more likely that a lot of these companies will be bought up, whether that be at a discount or a premium is to be determined. A lot of them will fail, a lot of them will go to nothing. Uh, But I think that when you look at the beer industry, for example, people tend to mischaracterize the marijuana industry. You see a lot of, as a commodity, you see a lot of beer producers. Sure, the commodity underlying them is like hops, but you can tell a difference between your different beers. The same thing is true for the marijuana industry. So we're focused on really strong competitive advantage, brand differentiation, that will end up being, you know, you could say the Sam Adams of marijuana. And in a lot of cases, that might actually end up being something like Sam Adams. We've already seen uh, a number of beer producers, for instance, invest into the space. Thanks to Airbnb for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're looking for some extra income, then hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. That's because it's free to list your home, and Airbnb offers a $1 million host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. Host when you want, how you want. It's all up to you. You probably already love Airbnb as a guest, but I know so many people who have an extra property or even extra rooms in their house that they could be earning money on as a host on Airbnb. Some people even Airbnb out their places when they travel. So go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting, and you'll receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by July 31. That's airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. All right, next question comes from Matt. What are some good ideas for investing money from redeemed series EE savings bonds? 
I have several that my grandparents purchased for me and we will be fully matured over the next eight years. I thought about reinvesting in savings bonds, but it doesn't seem like there's a very good rate of return on them these days. Ah, the classic grandparent Aww, gift. That's so sweet. It is very sweet and very thoughtful. Um, so, first of all, let me establish that you are right that EE savings bonds currently don't pay much. According to treasurydirect.gov, they currently pay 0.1%. So, it's not something I would suggest that you roll over. Um, however, it does ma- I would say it does matter when you got the bonds, because currently the bonds are just issued at face value and you just get a fixed rate. In the past, what you got was a bond that was a paper bond, an actual paper bond, and then you paid half of the face value. So, if your grandparents wanted to give you a $100 bond, you only paid 50 bucks. And it was guaranteed to at least double your money within 17 years. So, if you have one of those bonds and, and you haven't owned it for 17 years yet, you might want to at least hold on to it until then. Um, I should point out that there are a couple of other benefits to these savings bonds. Like all federal government uh, securities, they're free of state and local taxes. Also, the taxes from the redeemed bonds, uh, you don't have to pay them if you use the bonds for qualified higher education expenses. So, something to think about, I guess, if you're going back to school. Otherwise, though, once you do get the money, I would say look at something other than a savings bond, even a good old cash account through something uh, like the Motley Fool's Ascent, which will help you find a higher yielding savings account, will pay much more than a typical savings bond. All right, next question comes from Tamarin. I am a student at the University of Northern Iowa. I recently started listening and have been binging on all the Fool podcasts. What advice would you have for college students who are interested in being on track for FIRE? That's a really good question. Oh, and we'll have you define FIRE. Yes, I feel like I should define FIRE first. Um, so, FIRE is Financial Independence Retire Early, FIRE. Um, and it's a movement essentially saying, I either want to make a lot of money or I want to save a lot of money. You know, So, make more money, cut my expenses, one or the other, probably both. Uh, so, I have the financial independence and flexibility to not work in the future if I don't want to. And I'm, I'm a big fan of this movement, maybe not the RE, retire early part of the FIRE, but at least the financial independence. And I feel like that's something every person should consider in their life, is, is reaching that point of financial independence. And it's great that you're thinking about this in college. I'm a recent college graduate myself. Can I still say that? I'm a recent college graduate myself. <laughs> yes, you uh, can. So, it's important to start thinking about that earlier rather than later. And the biggest thing a lot of people say cut your expenses, don't go out to lunch, you know, make a budget. That's really really important. That is. But the biggest thing that defines people who are able to retire if that's what you're interested in doing in their 30s versus their 40s or 50s, it tends to be your career. So if that's extremely important to you, then think about your career, think about the big purchases you make in your life. So car loans, student loans, buying a house, even the place where you choose to live and start a family, all of these things, and marriage, for instance, all of these things are big financial decisions that a lot of people get into without realizing the impact that it's going to have on their fire potential. So, think about it. The first thing I do is say, make a budget, understand your income or your projected income, I guess, if you're in college, uh, understand your projected expenses, what you can live off of, and importantly, what you can save. And I know, I'm sure both of you tout this, uh, but save at least 15% of your income for retirement starting early. That makes a huge difference as you age. If you start now, you start when you graduate college, then even if you aren't able to retire early, you'll be able to retire. And that's the more important thing. Yeah. And for the people who who do manage to retire early, and 
like by their 30s or, or even 40s, they're saving much more than 15%. They're saving like 40 to 50%. So that's mm-hmm. something to keep in mind. Another resource I'd recommend is uh, retireearlylifestyle.com. That is the website of Billy and, and Acacia Caterly, who we've talked about in the show before, who retired in 1991 at age 38. And so they've been early retired almost 30 years. They're kind of a pioneer in the whole uh, idea of retiring early. And they were able to do it because they live all over the world in very low-cost locations and live on less than $30,000 a year. Wow. And I bring them up because they just updated their book, The Adventurer's Guide to Early Retirement, the fourth edition. So it is chock full of all kinds of practical and philosophical tips on retiring early. So visit retireearlylifestyle.com if you want to learn more about that. All right, next question comes from Justin. I think I might have made a mistake. I had several higher yielding dividend stocks in my brokerage account. I sold all of these and rebought them in my Roth IRA the same day. My thought was, I should move these stocks to the Roth in order to not pay taxes on the dividends through the years. Also, the dividends do not count toward my contribution limit, which would be another advantage as I'm only 30 years old and plan to continue maxing out the contribution yearly. I assume that because I sold and rebought the stocks on the same day, I cannot take a capital loss on my tax return in the future. Is there a way I can transfer stocks from the brokerage account to Roth? So, the first thing you did was smart. If you are young, it definitely makes sense to have your dividend paying stocks in your tax advantage account so you don't pay those div- taxes on those dividends each and every year. And then for out your taxable brokerage, just have a good stock that doesn't pay a dividend. It's more tax efficient. But unfortunately, you're right. Because you sold and bought on the same day, you can't take any loss on the sale because you violate the wash sale rule, which means you have to wait 30 days from selling the stock at a loss till you can buy it back. And that's actually wait 30 days afterwards, or and you can't buy it 30 days beforehand. Some people think that if I sell it in my taxable brokerage account, but buy it in my IRA, that doesn't violate the wash sale rule. But that's just not true. So unfortunately, you will not be able to take that loss. Um, and another question you had was, is there a way to move stocks to an IRA? And the answer is actually also no. You can only move cash into an IRA with the exception of employer stock. There's some ways to do that. But otherwise, you can only move cash into an IRA. Now, if you want to take stock out of an IRA, you actually can do that without selling it. But cash is the only way to put that in there. He also had this interesting point there about how the dividends do not count toward his annual contribution limit. Um, and I think most people know that, but every once in a while I do get a question where people ask, you know, the the cash that has paid my investments, either interest from my bonds or dividends from my stocks, does that count towards that six thousand dollar annual contribution limit for my IRA? And the answer is no. You don't have to worry about that. All right, next question comes from Rich. I was talking to some coworkers the other day about investing, and a question came to me: Is there an index fund for the Nasdaq? The best I could come up with was the ticker symbol QQQ. It seems this ETF has some decent compounded returns. Would this be more advantageous than an S&P 500 index? I also talked to my coworkers about investing. What a small world it is. <laughs> yes, uh, so there is an index fund for the NASDAQ. The S&P 500 also has index funds that track it. It really is just a question of what you're trying to achieve. So, S&P 500 index funds, they're all a little bit different. Same is true for NASDAQ index fund. But let's use um, a traditional index fund. Probably the most popular S&P 500 index fund, Vanguard's. I think its, it's ticker is 
VFINX. Uh, so that one tracks S&P 500 by buying all 500 S&P stocks on a market cap weighted basis. So it has much higher holdings in larger companies, less in smaller companies, with the intent of recreating the returns of the S&P 500 for those companies. The Nasdaq, on the other hand, um, using QQQ as an example of, of a Nasdaq index fund, um, attempts to recreate the returns of the Nasdaq, but they buy the top 100. Nasdaq companies also on a market cap weighted basis. Um, so you'll notice if you dig into that a little deeper, 55% of the portfolio is held in the top 10 companies of the Nasdaq. And the Nasdaq tends to be very tech focused. So you'll notice the returns for an index fund that tracks the Nasdaq are higher than that that tracks the S&P 500. And that's in large part due to the big success that we've seen of technology and tech-based companies that are in the Nasdaq over the past 5 years. So when you look at the returns, NASDAQ looks better, but it really is up to what you're trying to achieve. And it's important to remember that neither of these are completely diversified index funds. So a lot of people think that they can put all their money into an index fund and it's fine. You know, notice that companies like Vanguard, for instance, actually stopped offering the S&P 500 index fund to their employees because too many people were putting all their money in it thinking this is a diversified index fund. When in reality, both of these are just large cap companies. So if you're like me, I tend to take a five fund approach, I guess, to to my retirement, which is large cap, mid cap, small cap, international, and you know, bonds, fixed income, something safer. Now, this is a great an index fund that tracks S and P S and P five hundred or the Nasdaq are great for the large cap portion of that approach, but they're not going to give you any other exposure. So both are totally fine. It really is just how much you are comfortable with the tech weighting that the Nasdaq tends to have. Yeah, the QQQ is interesting because it is really the, just the hundred biggest companies in the Nasdaq, whereas the Nasdaq itself, as an index, has three thousand stocks, yeah. and there aren't that many. In fact, I couldn't find any in my brief search any sort of ETF or fund that tracks the entire. It'd Nasdaq. be too much. It'd be, It'd be too an much. active portfolio yeah. at that point. Fidelity has an open-ended mutual fund that has two thousand of them, and it has an ETF that has about a thousand of them. And the good thing is, those are a little bit more diversified, not as concentrated in the top ten holdings. A little more diversified by the sector, but still very tech-heavy uh, and consumer cyclical because Amazon falls under that <laughs> heading. Um, whereas the S and P five hundred is, as Emily said, it is very large cap focused, also concentrating the top holdings, but not as much and more diversified by sector. Uh, and one of the things that Emily also pointed out is Vanguard, in its own 401k, it switched from the S&P 500 to a total stock index because um, it's just more representative of the broader market. And we at the Motley Fool and our Motley Fool 401k committee did the same thing. All right, our next question comes from Matthew. I have a question regarding my Roth 401k. I have asked my plan sponsor, the investment firm where my 401k is located, and the benefits company my HR department recommended I contact, and none have provided a clear answer. Here's my question. Why am I not seeing dividends with my mutual funds on my quarterly statement? Well, first of all, I'm a little surprised that they couldn't provide an answer to that. That's a little shocking. Um, but so all I can say is I know how it's all reported in our 401k, which is administered by BB&T. And when I look at when you look at the quarterly statements, you do not see the dividends. You have to go on to the website itself and choose account activity or transaction activity, and there you will see the dividends paid by each fund 
and what they bought. So there are, if you're reinvesting them, and it tells you how many shares you bought of that fund. If you haven't visited your 401k or 403b website, I totally recommend it because you're going to get a lot more information. More and more of these providers are providing tools and different ways to look at your holdings, even retirement calculators. So I would go to the website and see if you could find the information there. Uh, and since this is about dividends, I'm going to bring in another question that was asked by Bobby, and he basically asked, "Should I reinvest my dividends?" And you have a choice in your 401k or outside of your 401k. And I would say, for most people, I think reinvesting dividends makes sense. It's automatic. It's a built-in dollar cost averaging. So you're you're buying more shares when that investment is down, fewer shares when that investment is up. That makes a lot of sense. However, there are many people, including people here at the Motley Fool, who like the idea of letting the dividends accumulate as cash and being more deliberate about where they invest it. They may look at it every month and say, "Okay, now that this cash is accumulated, where do I think now is the best place to put that cash?" I think that makes sense if you're that type of investor. I also think it makes sense once you're reaching maybe a decade of retirement. We mentioned Susan earlier on. It might be a good time then to turn off the reinvestment of dividends because then you're going to automatically start building up that cash cushion as you get closer to retirement. All right, our next question comes from Ben. Hey, Alibert South Camp, what are your thoughts on contributing in this order of priority? One, max out company match. Got to get that free money. Two, max out health savings account. Three, max out Roth IRA. Offers the most options. And number four, contribute what I can to Roth 401k. I'm already doing one, three, and four, but I'm going to be starting an HSA this coming year. The way I look at it, the HSA has more tax benefits than the IRA and 401k. I'm worried that too much money is going to my health rather than retirement, although health costs are astronomical. I'm 36 and newly married with kids hopefully on the way. Well, congratulations, Ben, on yeah. your marriage. Uh, that's <laughs> exciting. And in the premise, I think I agree with your one, two, three, and four there company match, HSA. IRA and then 401k. That is in the order, I guess you could say, of of tax priority, right? You get the immediate free money on your match, and the HSA tends to be the best tax advantage vehicle for retirement. Uh, not only because you can contribute that money before you pay taxes, but also if you don't spend that money on the medical expenses that you accumulate over the years, but keep the receipts, you can then withdraw that money in retirement with those receipts without ever paying taxes on it. But here's the thing: most people aren't diligent enough to keep those receipts. Seats, and a lot of people end up spending that money on healthcare needs. So you mentioned that you're married. You maybe have kids coming up in the next few years. It's important to look at if an HSA is the best option. A lot of people tend to find that as they get older, their healthcare costs become more expensive, and as they have kids, their healthcare costs become more expensive. And you only qualify to have an HSA if you have a high deductible healthcare plan. So it may be less beneficial to pay for a high deductible healthcare plan in order to access the HSA than it is just to pay for a, a healthcare plan that maybe covers more um, and doesn't give you access to the HSA. So theoretically I think that order is correct. Assuming you keep the receipts, you don't, you know, spend any money out of the HSA and save all that to be withdrawn in retirement. In actuality, not a lot of people are able to achieve that. And you if you have extremely high healthcare costs coming up in the few years, um, people might want to reevaluate whether or not a high deductible healthcare plan that qualifies for an HSA is actually better than a healthcare plan that isn't high deductible, doesn't qualify for an HSA, but covers more. 
All right, our last question comes from Paul. My employer offers both a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k. I'm confused about the maximum contribution. In 2019, is it accurate to say I can contribute $19,000 to the traditional 401k and contribute another $19,000 to the Roth 401k for a grand total of $38,000? Nice try, Paul, but no. Uh. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. So, yeah, so if he's uh, not quite 50, so his contribution limit is $19,000. If you do the Roth and the traditional, the total can only be the 19000 Same with IRAs. If you do a Roth IRA and traditional IRA, it can only combine to the 6000 If you're 50 or older, you can do another 1000 for the IRA, another 6000 for the 401k. That said, there are some quirky little things. So, For example, if you are lucky enough to work for an employer who offers both a 401k, 403b, and a 457, which is mostly government uh, companies that offer, you can actually max out both. There's also something called the after-tax contributions to the 401k. So that is, there's actually an all-in limit to 401ks, which includes everything the employer puts in as well as the employee, uh, and that all-in limit is fifty-six thousand dollars in 2019. So what he could do is put in the nineteen thousand dollars, then there's whatever the employer puts in his match, and then whatever's left over up to that fifty-six thousand dollar limit he puts in as an after-tax contribution. No deduction on that contribution. The money grows tax deferred. So he won't pay taxes as it grows, but then when he retires, he'll have to pay taxes on the growth. So it's sort of like a non deductible traditional IRA. For some people who are super savers, that actually can make a lot of sense. The alternative is just to invest outside of a tax advantage account in a taxable account. Just don't sell anything for several years. And then when you pay, the taxes, it's at long-term capital gains rates, which is lower than withdrawals from a traditional IRA. So, just making you aware of all the options. Well, great job, you guys. You answered 13 <laughs> questions today. We've been bumping up our number just to try to get Is this more. a new record? Uh, I, think we, I think we did like 15 or 16 in the last month. Mm, all right. Well, we'll see what we can do. I, th- I feel like 13 is still a good one. All right. It's now, it's my good. turn to talk about the other feedback we've gotten. So, uh, we received a message from Zach. Zach wrote, I love, love, love your podcast. I'm super stoked whenever I see a new episode pop up on my iPhone. However, is it recently, about, is it about my voice or your voice? No. Recently, <laughs> I've been cringing whenever I hear you guys talking about the amount people have invested in their 401ks and how it's such a low amount. I think you guys are making a mistake assuming that people don't have money invested elsewhere. While many people have 401ks with their workplace, not everyone has low expense ratio investment options in their 401k plan. By only focusing on dollars saved in 401ks, you are undercounting people like me, who've had most of their wealth in other investment instruments. Well, I think Zach actually makes an interesting point, because 401k average balances really are just a small part of someone's overall retirement picture. So, it definitely is not necessarily the best gauge for whether the average American is well prepared for retirement. What I did like about, we talked about Fidelity's numbers previously, and they talked about the average balances for people who have been contributing for 10 years and 15 years, and I thought that was a little more informative. But yeah, I think it makes a good point. All right. Well, and just know, Zach, that when we complain about 401k amounts, we're not directly you know, criticizing you personally. That's right. We think you're doing a great you're job, You're doing Zach. great, Zach. You're doing great. All right, let's head to the postcards. Uh, so, Rich Smith went to Texas, but he also reported back on uh, his trip to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting in Omaha. He said that our travel hacking episode inspired him to travel hack their airfare to Omaha. Ooh, and it worked. That's it, I guess so. All right. Um, 
50 billion cent is hanging out in St. Thomas and Puerto Rico and wanted to remind us to take some time off with our spouses. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, we're going to be going to Bermuda in a little bit. How about you guys? How about you, bro? Uh, we're doing. We're taking a cruise to Alaska. Ooh, Emily, yeah. do you have any travel plans coming up? Scotland, actually. Ooh, wow, yes. oh, very nice. Nicest people in the world. Uh, Hope I'll understand them. Right? It, it, it is tough. Surprisingly <laughs> tough. Um, stocks. All right, John from Queens wrote from Seattle. They are on track with their emergency fund and retirement, so they took a well-deserved vacation. Nice. Also, stocks! David <laughs> sent a card from his trip to Jordan and Israel, but all he was thinking about was stocks! It busts me. It, so, <laughs> someone used to write postcards. I think, um, I don't know, it was Dave, I think it's someone, uh, I'll get wrong, who did it originally. But they wrote in their postcard, stocks, screaming at me, and it makes me laugh. And so now other people are writing in and yelling stocks at me, and it's, it just makes me laugh. So funny. Oh, and speaking of traveling, Patty and Jean, they're still on the road. They're never not traveling. They sent us cards from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Oh, nice. Isn't that nice? Thanks, they guys. Such, they have such great handwriting. Also, I want to thank everyone who wrote a review on iTunes recently. I must have asked nicely because there did I you're nodding your head yeah you did say something along those lines well I mean I guess I asked nicely enough because four of you responded with reviews so I want to thank 14 14 and Vols 575 and Emmy Gary and Bernie Schultz for um, writing nice reviews um, for example 14 ch or 14CH14. I've listened to a lot of financial podcasts while working out or driving. This is my absolute favorite. Oh, Allison man. and Bro make a great team. Oh. Allison is an absolute delight. <laughs> and I believe she make any podcast instantly better. And then they, they just keep going on about how great I am. That's true. And then, <laughs> as, as often the case, people are like, oh, no, bro, you're okay, too. You're just yeah. not as, you're just not as good That's as Allison. That's pretty much it. And I, and I totally agree. Bro would be my favorite podcaster <laughs> if it weren't for Allison. Uh, and then the reviewer offered up that it deserves a special hug, which we haven't talked about in a while. So, anyway, special anyway, hugs all around. Can we do, so let's everyone. just say these things make our day. So if you ever feel inclined to add to the reviews, just to make us happy, it'll work. Oh my goodness, you guys are funny. You guys make <laughs> make us laugh. So, all right. Well, that's the um, that's the episode. It is. You're Emily, right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Uh, please, please come back again. The show is edited flippantly by Rick and Tall. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.